All right, well, I was thinking about how to do this, and there's really no gentle way <laughs> to introduce today's topic. We are talking about adultery and divorce. And everybody cheered and got all excited because that's everyone's reason. But listen, hey, if you're surprised, that's kind of on you, because we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been going through it just through all the verses, and if you would have checked last week where we stopped and what the next verse was, you'd have known and you could have made other plans, right? But here we are, okay? Uh, but it makes sense that Jesus would talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the big topic that we're going through in kind of this middle section of the sermon is the topic of righteousness. That Jesus is showing us what kind of righteousness is required for those who are going to be a part of his kingdom. And in Jesus' mind, the, the issue of righteousness was not, not just about good ethics and morality and doing all the right things. Jesus said it's actually something well beyond that. It's an issue of the heart. And the definition of righteousness is that righteousness is about relationships. Righteousness is all about how we relate to each other. If we are supposed to have a righteous relationship with God, then that's not mediated through doing the right things. That's mediated through heart issues. And we're supposed to have righteous relationships with each other. So it makes sense that Jesus would use examples from the most intimate of all human relationships, the relationship of marriage. So as he gets into this topic of adultery and divorce, he talks about what righteousness in human marriage looks like. Now, before I get into it, I, I do want to make sure I say a couple of things. I'm aware that within our congregation, there are people both in person and online, there's a wide variety of situations present. Those who are single, married, separated, divorced, widowed, remarried, not to mention those who have grown up in families who have many different dynamics. And I want to make something clear at the beginning, which will also be clear as we go. Jesus' teaching, particularly as he talks about divorce, divorce is not meant to heap guilt or shame on people. Jesus' teaching on divorce is, is geared toward protecting people and focusing on, uh, uh, focusing on how people are treated in some of the most difficult circumstances of life. And so I don't want anyone in here sweating, feeling like you're about to get nailed, and you're about to get judged, and you're going to leave feeling all guilt. This, that's not what we're doing today. And in fact, sometimes people have taken Jesus' teachings and twisted them and used them to heap guilt and shame on people when the emphasis of Jesus' teachings was graciousness and protecting people from harm. So don't take Jesus' teachings and use them to do something that he was not trying to do with them. We are not about guilt and shame here at APA. We're about Jesus who saves, forgives, and sets free. Amen? So let's get into it. Let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. 
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's look through this again in a few different chunks, starting with the first thing Jesus says about adultery, saying, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the rule. That's the law. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, adultery, just like last week's topic of murder, we're just doing the best topics in the world here at APA, just like last week, it's in the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments, you read, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. They're both in the top ten list, ten of the most important commands governing the affairs of the people of Israel. And, and so this is not a, a, a light command. This is something that's very important in God's law. And now simply defined, adultery is participating in any sexual relationship outside of your marriage. God says, don't do it. That's the law. That's the rule. Black and white. Do not do it. Now what the law did was it helped restrain people from sin. It's similar to any law we have today. Even think of simple laws like traffic laws. So like speeding laws restrain you from speeding. You want to speed. You wish you could go faster. You're always late. You want to hit that gas. But the law restrains you because there's a little bit of fear over safety. There's fear over uh, getting a ticket or getting in trouble. The law restrains you. But it actually doesn't change your heart. Speeding laws don't make you want to go slower. In fact, sometimes speeding laws make you want to break them, right? And that's, you know, Paul kind of riffs on that idea in the New Testament. The law actually just highlights our sin and shows us how, how dark our heart is. So the law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandment laws, the law on adultery, it restrained adultery. It kept people from doing it externally, but it didn't do anything to stop people from wanting to commit adultery. And so Jesus recognizes the limits of the law, and he actually says, I want you to go further than the law. And I want to do something deeper in you, in your heart, that's going to not just make adultery illegal, but make adultery unthinkable. Because you're a transformed person from the inside out. And it's fascinating, he's doing the same thing that he did with murder last week. So both with the murder and adultery, you can have two people who both on the outside have not murdered somebody. Great, you've fulfilled the law. But one person on the inside is full of anger, full of hatred, fantasizes about murdering people all the time, and if there was no law, they'd probably do it. Similarly with adultery, you can have two people who on the outside technically have not had sex with someone who isn't their spouse. But one person on the inside is fantasizing, wishing they could. If there was no law, if they weren't, could, wouldn't be caught, they would probably do it. And Jesus says, just because on the outside you haven't technically broken the law, doesn't mean that on the inside you aren't a lawbreaker. The heart is where it matters most. Now notice, he picks on men specifically. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. This doesn't mean that the same is 
not true for women. The same ideas apply to women and lust. But I think Jesus is recognizing some cultural issue, issues here, but also some biological issues. Generally speaking, men are more visual in their sexual arousal than women are and struggle in this area more than women. Now, uh, I, I, asked, I, I asked my wife for permission to tell this story, and it's not going to go down a bad road, don't worry. This is just a kind of an ongoing joke we have in our house, because I give her a hard time. She, I don't know if she's unique, but in our 15 years of marriage, in every way she has been faithful to me, and she never, ever, ever gives me any indication that she's attracted to other men. Like, I never catch her, like, turning her head. I never, I, she, I never hear her talking about men. I never hear her talking about celebrities or movie stars. Never. I just, she just, like, I don't know if she's just perfect or she's just hitting it really well. I don't know. With one exception. Former Vancouver Canuck captain, Trevor Linden. And, and often when that... Yeah. So, so here's what happened, all right? We used to live in Penticton, and we would always hear rumors that people had spotted him downtown uh, during the Saturday market. And because uh, he kind of, he, with his, when he was working with the Canucks and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so one Saturday, we're downtown at the market, and I spotted him like a couple hundred meters away. I'm thinking, should I say something? Uh, and so I say, hey, hey, there's Trevor. And she just takes off <laughs> and forced me to take this picture. <laughs> and she's got our daughter, and he's got, don't they look like a happy family? That was the day I decided we were going to move. That was the day. Okay, take it off the screen. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Because it is not a sin to find someone attractive. It is not a sin, men, to think that's a beautiful woman. It is not a sin, women, to think that's a good-looking man. It is not a sin. It's, it's, it's like appreciating art. An artist has created something beautiful. You appreciate it for what it is. God has created beautiful men and women. That is not a sin to notice. It's when our notice of someone's attractiveness turns into desire and thought and pursuit that's inappropriate, that the, desi- that the uh, notice of their attractiveness turns into lust. And Jesus says, that then is adultery of the heart. You may not have technically performed an adulterous act, but in your heart, it's the exact same thing. Now, when we reduce someone merely to their sexual attractiveness and start to lust over them and desire them purely for that, what we're actually doing is we're, we're dehumanizing them. We're, we're reducing their value to that narrow thing that is just their sexual attractiveness, the potential satisfaction they could give us in that way. We're reducing them, saying, I only value you because of this one thing. It devalues the person. It devalues your spouse, whether it's the fact that you're married or one day will be married. And it damages your own soul. And this is exactly what we see with the use of pornography. Okay, we're going even, we're just going to keep going to the bottom here, okay? Pornography being a relatively modern invention that has, uh, coupled with the internet, become 
extremely accessible and extremely damaging. It's so accessible, most kids see it before they turn double, digit, di double digits. 75% uh, of teenagers have viewed pornography. This is your warning, parents. Your kids don't need as much screen time as you think they do. Certainly not as much as they think they do. And definitely not um, unsupervised screen time. Because even if they're not looking for it, it is looking for them. That's how those websites are designed, to hook them in, get them addicted, and start this long journey. Um, the reality is when you scan the brain of a, a pornography addict and scan the brain of a drug addict, they look very similar. But this is what pornography is. It's basically the exact definition of adultery of the heart. You technically have not committed the act of adultery. But Jesus says, in a lot of ways, you might as well have. Um, just because you're not married doesn't mean it's not as big a deal for you. Single people in the room, especially young single people, listen up. Okay? If your hope is to one day have a fulfilling, lifelong commitment to one partner, one person in marriage, and have a, a fulfilling sex life with that person, then lusting after a different person on the internet every, internet every day is not helping you practice for what you say you want. You're practicing for adultery, not marriage. So this is doing damage to your soul. It's devaluing people. It's devaluing your spouse. And the porn industry is full of sex trafficking and lack of consent and all kinds of abuse. It's the very de definition of adultery of the heart. Now here's what Jesus says we should do to guard our hearts from adultery. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Adultery leads to unrighteousness, alienation from God and from others, and on a journey that leads to death and hell. Now, what do you do to stop yourself from looking lustfully at a woman. Jesus says, pluck out your eye. Now go home and apply the word of God. Is he serious? Well, yes and no. He's using hyperbole. He's using graphic image here, not expecting us to literally pluck out eyes and cut off hands. If we did that every time we sinned, we'd enter heaven as bloody stumps, right? But what he's doing is he's trying to show the seriousness of sin and the lengths we need to go to do what we need to do to give our hearts respite from temptation so that they can be healed and strengthened and be made new so that we can live in the righteousness of Christ. So what do we have to, quote-unquote, cut off to protect ourselves from temptation that's leading us into sin. He's telling us to take radical steps to give our hearts respite from temptation. Now notice, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, if your hand causes you to stumble. So he's saying this is a hypothetical rule you're going to be able to be putting in your life. 
This is not a universal rule for all Christians. And sometimes we've made the mistake as Christians to say, well, you know, something that everybody should do is, you know, it would be wise to do this or do that or not do this or not do that because it can protect you from temptation. And then we've made it a universal rule and then made people feel guilty about it and just put legalism on people. Stuff that's not in the Bible, we just add rules and it's like not a sin, but you've broken the man-made rule and so now you're a sinner. No, no, no. Jesus says this is for individuals to consider, for people in accountability to consider what's specifically your struggle and what specifically do you need to do? What specifically do you need to cut off in order to remain safe from your temptation? So, for example, if you can't be on the internet without looking at pornography, you can't be on the internet. If you can't have one beer without having ten, you can't have beer. That doesn't mean those rules are universal. But for you, whatever your struggle is, whatever you're dealing with, you need to recognize something may need to be cut off in order to give your heart respite, to heal, and be strengthened and renewed so you can walk in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, it's a natural transition Jesus makes between adultery and divorce as we move through the text. If adultery is about pursuing alternative options, divorce is about believing that you're better off with any other option than you're currently in right now. The reality is adultery and divorce are often very interconnected. A lot of divorces happen because of adultery. But I also find through personal kind of anecdote, but also um, lots of things I'm hearing Um, I have a friend of mine, his wife works with couples who are divorcing. She kind of helps them amicably split assets and those sorts of things. And uh, she finds that in most cases, before the divorce is final, at least one person has already started another relationship. And just so you know, even though you're in the process of divorcing, if it's not done, it's still adultery. Okay? Um, So it's, it's very often inter- connected. But let's read what Jesus says about it again. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let's acknowledge a couple things together. Marriage is hard. Can I get an amen from the married people, please? This is an okay, it's okay. Yeah, all right. Not just us, Rebecca. <laughs> Marriage can be and is incredibly fulfilling. It's amazing to have a partner to do life with, someone to walk with, to talk with, to achieve goals and dreams with, to have fun with, to have a lover, to have a friend. All those things are incredible blessings in marriage. But while marriage can be one of the most fulfilling relationships, it can also be one of the most frustrating relationships. To my wife, I am simultaneously the person she loves and cherishes most in the world, while at the same time being the most annoying person she has ever met. And I wear it with a badge of honor, to be honest. And I saw this the other day. Marriage is about solving problems, problems that you wouldn't have if you were single. (laughs) 
But that's exactly what, the, the Paul, what Paul told the Corinthian believers. He said, hey, it's a good thing to get married. It's a good thing to be single. Both of those are legitimate relationship statuses in the kingdom of God. But I want to warn you that marriage is hard, and I want you to avoid the problems associated with marriage if you can remain single. Now, Jesus' view of marriage and divorce has some tension to it. He has a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. He values marriage. He sees marriage as God's idea. God invented it because it's a good gift to humanity, male and female partnering together to accomplish God's purposes in the world. That is a good thing. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds that which is good. In fact, the social sciences support the goodness of marriage as well in things like personal finances. Those who are married and stay married to the same spouse tend to be way better off in retirement than those who are divorced, remarried, or stay single throughout their life. Men who are married tend to make 10 to 40% more income than single men with the same education and experience. There's lots of benefits to marriage. There are kids who grow up in a house that's intact have two to three times more positive outcomes than kids in divorced families. Marriage is good for people. It's good for families. It's good for kids. But we also recognize that there is this very high divorce rate in our culture. And a lot of people are concerned about that, wondering if it's even worth it to get married in the first place if it's going to just fall apart. The reality is there are a lot of things, simple things, that can be done to mitigate those high chances of divorce. Think about this. Graduate high school before you get married. This is one of the stats. It greatly reduces the chances of divorce. Have babies after you get married. A lot of people assume that living together is an important first step to gauge a, a compatibility between partners before marriage. In fact, those who live together before marriage have a higher divorce rate in marriage. You know what else reduces the divorce rate? Going to church together. Praying together. Having the same religious convictions. There was an old uh, stat that continues to circulate. It's fake news. It says that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate in the world. It's, it's based on a study that was done in the 80s that's been thoroughly debunked. It's not true. In fact, uh, the divorce rate in the church is a lot healthier, lower than the divorce rate outside of the church, particularly for these factors. Couples who go to church together, pray together, share the same religious convictions, have babies after they get married, uh, only live together after they get married. All those things improve your chances of staying together. But here's the tension I mentioned. Jesus has this high view of marriage and a low view of divorce because... Not because he's all about doing the right thing and following the law, because Jesus cares about how people are treated. Jesus cares about how people are treated. And because marriage is one of the most intimate human relationships, it also has the potential for the most harm in the relationship. He has a low view of divorce because he sees the damage divorce does to people, and he cares about people. And this is not new to Jesus. Listen to what God said through the prophet Malachi. Malachi 2.26 says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. 
Divorce is a form of violence against women. This is the emphasis of Jesus as he, as he actually focuses specifically on the role of men in the divorce. God here through Malachi is specifically talking about the role of men to protect the one they love, not to hate her, not to do violence against her. And this issue is particularly acute in Jesus' day, in the time of the scriptures, in a patriarchal society. Often women didn't earn an income. They didn't have social safety nets. So if you divorced your wife, she'd have to rely on extended family or the goodness of others. She wouldn't have the safety nets of uh, the social support that maybe a woman might have today. But God says to the men, you're supposed to protect your wife, not harm her. You're supposed to love her. You're supposed to love her as your own body, not dispose of her just because you think there might be a better option out there. Do not do violence to the one you should protect. Now, because Jesus' concern and God's concern is primarily about the safety of women and the violence done to women in marriage, it should be noted that women are not expected by God to stay in unsafe situations. And I think particularly sometimes Christian women have remained in unsafe situations because of the Bible's teaching on divorce, feeling like they don't want to get a divorce because that would be against God's law. And so they stay in unsafe situations. They don't tell people, they don't get help, and they experience harm and violence. I want you to know that I don't believe God expects you to stay in an unsafe situation. Because Jesus cares about how people are treated. Now at this time, Jesus is actually weighing into a debate that's been raging for a while on uh, how to interpret some Old Testament scriptures on divorce. There were two prominent schools of thought led by rabbis named um, Shammai and Hillel, and they both had different perspectives on this. So, so Jesus quotes, You've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must hand her a certificate of divorce. And so there was, there was uh, different interpretations about um, what constituted a good reason to divorce your wife in the first place. And it was based on different uh, interpretations of Deuteronomy 24. And um, there's just like a, a, a translation thing there that we don't have the time or I don't have the expertise to get into technically. But some viewed that passage to say that the only reason that's legitimate for divorce is that there was some sort of adultery. And then you're released from divorce and you can hand your wife a certificate of divorce. Others viewed it to say that if your wife does anything that displeases you, and literally on the list of things that could displease a man was that she burned dinner. She overdid the chicken. Divorce. But this is the debate. And so people, people were kind of based on the text trying to decide what did God actually mean by what constitutes a reasonable reason to divorce your wife. And so Jesus weighs in and he actually sides on the side that says, no, no, no. The only legitimate way that that bond has been broken, that two, that one flesh has been broken is if someone in the relationship commits adultery. But this comes up again in Matthew 19, verse 3 to 9. We read this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So basically they're saying, is it okay if a man divorces his wife because she burns the chicken? Jesus, re Jesus says, haven't you read? So he goes into the scriptures. He replied, at the end, or pardon me, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Again, he affirms that marriage is a divine union, that this is something God has done. Two souls, two bodies, two have become one. And so we have no right to take what God has joined together and separate it for profane reasons. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, they're saying, but Jesus, the law allows us to do this. Why are you disagreeing with the law? So Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus brings it back to the heart. He says, the reason you were given allowance in the law was because you had such hard hearts. It's, it's, Jesus is talking about a righteousness of the heart, remember? He's talking about how it's not so much about what you do on the outside as it is first about where your heart is at in the situation. Now hear this. As I said, we have often used these passages where Jesus brings a lot of clarity. He, he wants marriages to stay together. He, he's pretty strict when it comes to defining what adultery looks like. And we've often used these passages to heap guilt and shame on people who've been through divorce. But that's not the emphasis of Jesus. Emphasis of Jesus, again, is how people are treated, particularly the wives. Wives are not property. Wives are not to be swapped because you find a more appealing option. Wives are to be loved, cherished, and protected. Men are to be committed to the flourishing of their wives with every ounce of strength they have. Jesus cares about how people are treated. So we should not take his teachings and use them to treat people poorly. But taking the example of Jesus and walking in grace and love and welcome those who have been through challenging times. Because hear this, the sin of divorce is not divorce itself. The sin of divorce is how people are treated in the process of divorce. The sin of divorce is the adultery and the violence that happens as the result of divorce. So Jesus, I don't think he's creating another law that's going to be impossible for us to live by. I think he's speaking to the culture of divorce, the culture of shopping and swapping spouses whenever another appealing option shows up. This kind of culture does violence to people that God loves and people that we should love. So Jesus wants to do a work in our hearts to change us from the inside out, not just to make a law that makes divorce illegal, but to change our hearts so that the idea of adultery and divorce is unthinkable. Why would we ever do violence to someone that we love? And we live in a culture where it's not illegal to get a divorce. In fact, if you make that choice, you'll probably have a lot of people who affirm you, and they'll say, good for you, you deserve to be happy. You need to move on and find someone who's going to make you happy. But what if, in every marriage, the heart of both husband and wife was so soft toward one another, that no matter what difficulty arose, no matter what tension arose, no matter what disagreements came up, 
Instead of two hard rocks of hearts banging against each other and causing damage, there were two soft hearts that were always able to come back and embrace. To work with Jesus, to work along with the power of his Holy Spirit, bring healing and wholeness through all of life and marriage's trials. Maybe the problem isn't your spouse. Maybe the problem isn't their unwillingness to fulfill their responsibility. Maybe the problem is just hard hearts. And something about what Jesus is saying is that he's telling us it's possible. And he's actually saying that he can provide a cure for hard hearts, for those who will trust in him and walk with him and do what he's called you to do. Jesus, I can't change your heart. You can come to my office and I can try to help you. You can go to a counselor and they can try to help you. Only Jesus can change your heart. Only Jesus can change your spouse's heart. He promises that it's possible. And so how do you land a plane on a topic like this? I want to say two things, especially to those who have been through this. I want to say this. God is with you. God is with you. Don't forget that. Don't doubt that. Jesus comes, God in the flesh, not to heap guilt and shame on people. Like you've, you've seen him in action, right? He comes to the people who've suffered the most, who've struggled the most, who've sinned the most, and he heaps love and grace on them. That's what Jesus comes to do. He promises to be with us, especially during our lowest moments. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't accept a false identity that calls you less than you are. Because life isn't over. You're not a failure. God doesn't hate you. You're still his child. You are beloved. And recognize also that God understands what you've gone through. God himself admits that he was the victim of divorce. Jeremiah 3.18, he says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel, and the metaphor for that relationship is often marriage. And Israel regularly went off and sought after other gods, and, and there's all kinds of very graphic imagery of the adulteries of idolatry. How Israel ran after other gods and left God, and they actually had a divorce. God knows the feeling of being abandoned and having his heart broken, because when we sin, we're not just breaking God's law, we're breaking God's heart. His righteousness is about the heart. So God is with you. He's never abandoned you. And number two, there is hope. There is hope. This isn't the end. God still has good things in store for you. Hope is the belief that God has a good future in store for you, no matter how bad things are in the present. If you are currently married and struggling, there is hope. I guarantee that I know people who have been through worse than you and have made it through the other side. It is possible. Your marriage can be restored. 
Don't give up. Don't start chasing other options that seem easier or better because God can soften hearts and renew your relationship. But also don't struggle alone. Often when people come to see their pastor, it's when the ink is not quite dry on the papers and it's just so far gone. Come early, come often. You know, Rebecca and I, through our 15 years of marriage, we've been in the counselor's office for marriage counseling multiple times. We've done it since we've been to Abbotsford. Is our marriage falling apart? No, but that might be why. In the same way that you take your car to a mechanic every 5,000 kilometers to prevent damage, go see someone. Talk to them about your marriage. It could just be a friend, a counselor, a pastor. We need to do maintenance work, people. You wait too long, it gets way harder. The engine's already blown up and overheated. Keep it up. See people. Talk to people about your marriage. Find friends and confidants who can walk you through the struggles and hardship of marriage. There is hope. Do not give up. Now right now, I know there's lots of married people in the room. And so I'm going to ask you to grab the hand of your spouse. If you're married in the room, grab the hand of your spouse. And uh, normally I say this is optional, but today I'm pulling rank. I am your pastor, the representative of Jesus Christ in this moment. In the name of Jesus, grab the hand of your spouse. I don't care if you don't like them today. I don't care if you're fighting on the way to church. Grab the hand of your spouse. And I want you to affirm these two truths with me, with your spouse. Say it out loud. Repeat after me. God is with us. There is hope. One more time. God is with us. There is hope. All right. You can let go of their hand if you want, but it'd be better if you just hung on to it. Now, if you're here, if you're here and you're not with your spouse, maybe you've gone through divorce or you're in a separation or your spouse doesn't come to church with you, I want you to close your eyes just imagine holding the hands of Jesus and affirm those very things you don't need to say it out loud because you might not want to reveal what's going on that's fine but I want you to affirm those very same things after me God is with me there is hope God is with me there is hope Father in heaven thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are here and there is hope for those who put their trust in you. Lord, you know every heart. You know every situation. You know every heartbreak and every great moment as well. God, I thank you for the marriages in our church. I thank you, Lord, that that was your idea, that you brought these men and women together for a purpose. You've made two into one. God, that is good. But God, we also recognize how hard that relationship can be and how much of a struggle it can be. And so God, we ask in Jesus' name that you bring strength and restoration and hope and healing marriages that are struggling, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that you would bring them together in Jesus' name. 
that the enemy would not have a foothold to bring lies and deceit and destruction into those relationships, but God, each partner would look to you and to each other, that you, by your power and your power alone, would soften hearts and bring husband and wife together once again in love and righteousness. And God, for those who have been, who have experienced divorce and heartache, God, we pray you bring healing and comfort. And Lord, they would not feel a sense of shame or guilt, but they would just experience the goodness of your grace and your love. And they would, Lord, Lord, they would have wisdom to discern what is next for them, recognizing, Lord God, that their life still has so much hope and so much good and so much wonder before them, Lord God, because you are still with them and Jesus is alive and we have eternal life in store for us. God, I pray for the young people who are not yet married that desire marriage, others who desire marriage, Lord God. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give them um, a sense of wisdom, discernment to make good choices. Lord, to make choices now that would benefit their future marriage and their future spouse, that even now, even before they've met the person they will marry, they will honor their spouse, Lord Jesus, in every way. You would give them self-control. You would give them peace. You would give them hope, Lord God, and patience, Lord God, satisfaction with where they are and what they have now, not just looking to the future, Lord Jesus, but trusting you in all things. So God, we just love you. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your love. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. I do want to invite you. We're going to sing a song. It's, it's that song we sang earlier, Lord, I Need You. And uh, I think, you know, you can stand, you can sit, you can leave, I don't know, whatever you want to do. But I think this is a great song that has a good combination of, of recognizing our own sin and temptation, but also such a promise that God is close and he is near to the brokenhearted. So listen to the words, meditate on them, sing them, sand sit, whatever you want. But let's let's uh, allow this song to minister to us.